If you'll turn with me uh, in your copy of God's Word to, to Jeremiah 10, uh, verse 10, it's uh, page 638 in the Bibles in the pews and the rows. Uh, if you need a Bible to follow along with, I'd encourage you to use one of those to follow along. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, I encourage you to, to take one home with you. So Jeremiah 10.10 is our text for this morning. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earthquakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that your spirit would run freely through this place and our hearts and our minds. May we hear and see of your glory and your truth. Remove falsehood far from us. May we know your grace this morning. Fill me with your spirit and guide me. May my words be words that lift up and proclaim your glory. We ask this for that glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'll admit, it feels a bit inappropriate to begin a message the Sunday after Thanksgiving by talking about something that annoys me. But I'm going to do it anyways. And I'm pretty sure I've spoken along these lines before. It's just that certain thoughts or ideas or ways of speaking are actually an offense to my sense of reality and to the English grammar. Back in 2018, Oprah Winfrey gave a speech at the Golden Globes which propelled the use of a phrase into the cultural consciousness, and that phrase was this. Speak your truth. Now, at the time, to be fair to Oprah here, she was speaking of uncovering truth as in the verifiable factual events in regard to corruption and injustice. However, the turn of phrase she used doesn't mean that. It didn't really mean it back then. Contextually, you could get it. And it certainly doesn't mean it now. And today, that phrase communicates something very different. It's become a clarion call for people seeking their own desires. It's turned subjectivity into, quote, truth, or at least it's attempted to do so. And it has now morphed into phrases like living your truth. And it is truly, and, and I mean that, it is truly dangerous and deceptive. When the standard becomes what you feel, what your heart desires, which are both very pliable and unreliable, and our heart is deceptive, there are myriad problems that will ensue. The reality is, is we need a standard for truth. We would fare much better if we conformed our lives to a standard, to reality, rather than seeking to shape it on our own. And thankfully, we do have a standard of truth, our Lord and our God. This morning, we wrap up our look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, our series, Knowing um, Knowing God, uh, Doctrine, and Devotion. And so, one last time, now if you're new, just follow along, but everybody else is pretty close to memorize this. So, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable 
in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And I know you all could cheat because it was on the screen, uh, but hopefully, I should have said close your eyes and try that. But that's, that's what we've been going through, and today we turn to truth, to God as the one who is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably true. And so it is to him that we turn this morning, and we're going to look at two basic ideas, very simply, what truth is and why truth matters. So what truth is and why truth matters. Prayerfully, this morning, we will see the importance of this and how practical and good it is to know and to live according to the truth in our lives. Now, Merriam-Webster defines truth essentially as the body of real things, events, and facts, that it is the, the property as of a statement of being in accord with fact or reality. Truth has a fidelity to a standard. Truth is what is actually happening or has indeed taken place. It is reality. Now, I want to point out to you something, and that is what you did not see in that definition. Feelings. They're not in the definition of truth. Truth is not determined by one's subjective feelings. Truth corresponds to what is actually real, to fact. And you cannot have two contradictory things both be true when claiming truth in the same realm. Elisa Childers, in her book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, and the subtitle is this, exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. She wrote this, Truth is true for all people, in all places and times. It is also something you can't invent, think up, or create. It is something you discover. It doesn't change, no matter how much people's beliefs about it do. Truth isn't altered because of how it makes someone feel. Truth is entirely unaffected by the tone and attitude of the person professing it. Folks, truth is absolute. And biblically, what is conveyed by the word truth is that which is sure, that which is faithful, and that which conforms to reality, to fact. Robert Raymond wrote that by affirming that God is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably true, the catechism declares that he is logically rational, ethically reliable, and covenantally faithful, and that he always has been, is, and always will be unchangeably so. So essentially, God is who he says he is, and there is no contradiction. Further, there is no contradiction in anything that he says or does. God is utterly faithful. He is true to all that he has said and promised. Not one of his promises or his words will ever fail. So then, there is a sense that when we ask the question, what is truth, we are in essence, ask, we are in essence asking to know God. What is truth is who is God. If you are a seeker of truth, your journey has to come to God as he is the truth. So then let's, let's turn now to looking at um, God as the truth. Herman Bavink, as he wrote about this idea, he began with the Lord's name, and he wrote this. He said, the name Yahweh as such, already expresses that he remains who he is. So, I am that I am. That's Yahweh. He is a God of faithfulness and without deceit. It implies, one, that he is the real, the true God, in contrast to false gods, the idols, which are vanities. And two, that as such, he will always stand by his words and promises and prove them true. 
so that he will be seen as completely trustworthy. He is not a human that he should lie or change his mind. All that proceeds from him bears the stamp of truthfulness. Now, Bavink references our text, Jeremiah 10.10. So let's turn back to that text. And actually, turn, turn with me to Jeremiah 10, because we're going to read, starting in verse 1 through verse 10, just to get a little bit more context and idea within the chapter. So starting in verse 1. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the, crafts, of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So if you look at that, look at the way of the nations. What is the way of the nations in Jeremiah 10? It's vanity. It's vanity. The, the customs of the peoples are vanity. They follow after falsehood. They create their own gods that are powerless and worthless. And just in case you were wondering, th this way was not um, isolated to Jeremiah's day. Okay, it wasn't just in Jeremiah's day. It is the way of the nations now, the customs of the people. Man, left to his own desire, pursues falsehood. The false gods of money and success and comfort, and comfort can focus on various outlets that you could seek to pursue that idol, or of creating your own identity and being your own truth. It's all powerless, and it will let you down. When we deny the truth, the firm and authoritative truth of God and of who God is, we will naturally run into issues. We rebel against our Creator. Now, God being the true God, that is a statement of authority in this text. We've already seen in this series, as, as we've looked at a wide array of the attributes in regard to God, part of that is that God is by nature infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all that He is, in wisdom in holiness, in power, in goodness, and in truth, in context of the Jeremiah text, God is the only God, the only true God. Everything else is a false idol. Raymond again wrote, he said, when Scripture declares that God is the true God, it intends to affirm first that God is, metaphysically speaking, the only God who is really there. Over against the gods of the nations whom Scripture designates as lies. Everything else that we pursue to, to set up as, as an ultimate God in our life, it's a lie. 
Scripture makes clear that we ought not to pursue these false gods. In fact, Psalm 31, 6 states it this way, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Why? Because God is the rock, the refuge, fortress, the faithful, true God, but also because when you pursue false idols, you are actually doing damage to yourself and to those around you. Our call as people, as creatures, as humans, is to turn from falsehood to what is true. I love the way at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul wrote this. He said, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So the, the first time they come, they're, they're reporting this reception. It says, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what we do when we come to Jesus. We turn from idols to the living and true God. God is the God who is actually there. But there are other aspects that we think about when we consider God as true. He's also faithful. He's faithful to represent that which is real and genuine. Now, when we think about this, we might think about this most pertaining to language. God's language rightly represents reality. He speaks true statements, and they do not mislead. So think about this in regard to his commands, that thing that so many people want to rebel against, his commands. They are actually true and good. Psalm 119, 142, and 151. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. 151. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Also, God's promises are true. 2 Samuel 7, 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servants. And because his promises are true and made by the true God, we can hold fast to them. Hebrews 10, 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I love the way one Puritan, John Flavel, wrote about this idea of the promises of God. He says, A promise from God is full security to the faith of his people, and they may look upon it as good as a mercy in hand. The promise is going to happen. Folks, quite simply, God's words are true words. Let me just go through a few more texts. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Or Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. God cannot lie. All that God says is good and true. Therefore, there is no need, there is no impetus, no basis to add anything to his words. When we do that, that is simply humanity seeking to be their own God, seeking their own way. God is absolutely trustworthy and faithful to keep his promises. Now, the, 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 the keeping of his promises may not follow our timeline, our time frame in life, what we desire this is why it's so helpful for us to know the full character of God, because we know that he's infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably good and holy and wise. No matter what, he will fulfill his promises in his perfect time. 
So that leads us into another aspect of God is true, and this points first to the simple fact that he cannot and does not lie. We've kind of pointed to this a little bit, but just to be very explicit, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In Titus 1, 2, he is called the God who never lies. And in Hebrews 6.18, it is very simply stated that it is impossible for God to lie. But then, actually, if you go to Hebrews 6, you read the context around that, past, that little section in Hebrews 6.18, and it points to why this fact matters. Starting in verse 17 of Hebrews 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Folks, the fact that God is the true God, the fact that God never lies, the fact that God is unchangeable is actually surety for us. It is our hope. His impeccable character and faithfulness is what gives us strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That is the anchor of our soul. Deuteronomy 7.9 Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is faithful. All that he has said or promised holds true. So God is truth. He's truth in who he is. He is truth in all that he says and does. He is the standard of truth. He is faithful in all that he has promised. So then as we consider this, there are a number of implications that I want us to think about. Why this matters. The fact that God is, uh, is truth matters deeply to our everyday lives. First, even as I've gone through this, and we see who God is and the surety and the truth of who he is and his promises and his commands that they are good, that should actually lead us to awe and worship. But beyond that, we need to see how this truth affects us in the day-to-day. Therefore, if God be infinitely true, and he is, as Thomas Boston wrote, then all hypocrisy and dissimulation All falsehood and dishonesty, all lying, cheating, and double-dealing is most hateful to God, is most opposite to his holy nature, and flows from the devil and our lusts as father and mother to them. Was that straightforward enough? In John 8, 44, Jesus addressed the Jewish crowd around him, and he said this, This is a little more straightforward. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, we're fighting for the wrong team. The one who lies does not stand in the truth. He or she lives in the way of hypocrisy and falsehood. It's the way of the old self, Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. He's talking to believers. 
which is being renewed in, the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator, because our creator does not lie. Folks, we are to be people of truth with our words and in our practice of the faith, of our, of our religion. As we seek to imitate our God, our words and actions should line up. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. So lying lips, abomination, acting faithfully, a delight. We ought to be reliable and faithful in what we say and do. John Frame said, we represent the truth, not only in words, but in, la- in the language of our actions. Our deeds tell the world what we really believe to be true. Our deeds tell the world what we really believe to be true. Now, we're not going to do this perfectly. We all know that. We, we, we had a confession of sin in the service because we know that probably driving here, we had something to confess. We know we're not going to keep this perfect. We're not going to be 100% faithful and true. So when we do fail, we must not deceive ourselves. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, what? We make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. For us, part of being true, part of living truthfully is owning our sin. It's owning our sin. It's confessing. It's being humble and contrite and repenting of our sin. That is part of being true. It is not hypocrisy to sin. It's hypocrisy to pretend you are not sinning. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but we have to realize that our only sure foundation of hope is in the God who is there and is true and faithful. Folks, listen, if we abandon his truth, if we abandon his truth and pursue what we subjectively deem to be, quote, true, we will be shaken. We will. Even part of the armor of God we are called as believers to put on is what? The belt of truth so that we can stand firm. If we are not wrapped in the belt of truth, we will not stand firm. I listened this week to an interview with Thaddeus Williams, who's a professor at Biola University, and he's written a book called this, Don't Follow Your Heart, Boldly Breaking the Ten Commandments of Self-Worship. Love the title. And in this interview, he said that those who have been raised on, on the propaganda of just follow your heart, which is nearly every Disney movie you've ever watched, or be true to yourself, which is also every Disney movie you've ever watched, So those who've raised on just follow your heart or be true to yourself or live your truth now are bearing an absolutely crushing weight of that creator-sized task that they've put on their shoulders. It's this task of creating and sustaining their own identity over time. And not only is it living a lie, but it's a God-sized task that's heaped on a finite creature. And that God-sized task will crush you. It will crush you. And so when we do that, no matter on what scale we do it, often with that will come crippling anxiety, 
a deep sense of depression, and or an existential angst. You're just mad at everything. Which all of it, folks, is the predictable result of erasing the creator-creature distinction and living a lie and not living according to the truth. Quite simply, living a lie will do that for you. Williams gave some statistics. These are shocking. 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. 86% believe that in order to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. And with this, 91% affirm the statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. Or basically, to find the truth, look within. This is humanity, as, as the old theologian said, or curved in on itself. You're curved in on yourself. That's the definition of sin. And it's not a good thing. It's an inversion of the very first question of the shorter catechism, that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This has turned the, the first catechism question into, our chief end is enjoy me and glorify me forever. That will crush you. We must not abandon the true God for worthless idols. I was reading this week um, Jonah. And when Jonah's in the belly of the big fish, has one of the greatest confessions you have in Scripture. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Did you hear that first part? Those who pay regard to vain idols, to vanity, to what Jeremiah had talked about, to any of these idols that we pursue, forsake their hope of steadfast love. Because where is steadfast love found? In the Lord and in his truth. That's when when Jonah confesses, Lord, salvation belongs to you. Those who turn to what is false abandon that only place. And I realize that sometimes false gods can be really appealing. They dress up really well. They look really nice. They give you attention. They give you what you think you desire. But they also flat out lie to you. And they will 100% let you down. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but they will let you down. A lie will let you down. How many times have you watched sitcoms? And you see, like, one person does something and they start to lie, and you're just thinking, would you just tell the truth? And it keeps getting, I think that with Opie and the Andy Griffith show, all the, like Opie just, and then eventually it just gets worse and worse and worse. And Andy always finds out the lie always lets you down. It doesn't matter which thing. They have to write it somewhat according to reality or nobody's going to watch it. They know the lie will let you down. Our salvation and our hope is not found in trying to be the Lord or in trying to form our own truth, but it's in turning to the Lord, who is the actual truth. Our hope is found in knowing the truth and the one who is the truth. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent.
Knowing God involves loving Him, trusting Him, resting in Him as the true God, resting in His ways as that which is best and that which is our hope. Jesus did not say to no purpose, I am the way and the truth and the life. He came to save us from our falsehood, from our pursuit of vanity and of our own, quote, truth, and from our sin of self-obsession and self-justification. If we want to be freed from the rat race and the weight of trying to find our own truth, we must learn to flee to God and rest in Him. 1 John ends in a beautiful way. And it ends in some ways, people think, utterly abruptly, but I love it, and it's how we're going to end this morning. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your truth for your goodness and grace. Lord, too many of us on various levels feel the weight of trying to live our own truth. And it's going to crush us. Lord, we're weary and burdened. And we are so often because we have We have pursued falsehood. Take that from us, Lord. Forgive us for our wrong pursuit. Lead us in the way everlasting. May we know you, the true and the living God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.